Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So, today's program, well, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, legal cannabis, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, lots of this and that. Let's start with uh, legal cannabis. I, I'm going to start with that because I, I feel like some people may want to take the counterfactual here. So I want to give you a chance to email if you do. Uh, I think we need to take a second look, a careful look, at exactly what we want to legalize and uh, exactly how far we want to go with this. Now, the turn of the, the previous century, and so we're talking about 1910, this country had a huge alcoholism problem. And oddly enough, the women's uh, temperance movement and the vote for women uh, movements kind of coalesced, and it's an interesting bit time in history to look at, but women were often the victims of alcoholism. It wasn't an equal uh, opportunity uh, addiction. It was primarily men, often the only breadwinners. Women couldn't uh, get job. Child care was basically provided by the moms, and that was that. Uh, so they tried prohibition, and prohibition didn't work. Now, with cannabis, I think prohibition, we started out with prohibition, and um, yeah, that wasn't really working either. And so... Honestly, I've grown up uh, most of my life, and I think almost anyone within the sound of my voice has grown up with cannabis being, to a large extent, all, um, around. And whether you partook or not, uh, you could find it in most cultures. I want to draw a parallel between cannabis and the coca leaf, okay? The coca leaf, when I was down in Peru many years ago, uh, that's not illegal. You could buy coca leaf at any market. You could chew on it, and uh, you'd get a little numbness in your mouth and maybe a slight buzz if you uh, took enough of it, a buzz like, uh, you know, a double espresso kind of buzz. No big deal. Nothing super euphoric. So that's what the plant does. And I think if we think back to basic marijuana pre uh War on drugs, pre all the Nixon stuff and the war on drugs. What we have there is uh, we have something very analogous to the coca leaf. Now, it was back then, at, uh, around the, the late 1890s, that uh, somebody figured out how to turn the coca leaf into an extract, into an alkaloid. Uh, they called it cocaine. And some of you may remember that Sherlock Holmes was addicted to cocaine. So many smart people have gotten addicted to cocaine over the years because it sort of makes them smarter and it gives them a sense of euphoria. And, you know, I don't think in Sherlock's case, but there are also, uh, you know, changes in sexuality. And, uh, of course, the Peruvians are using the stuff for endurance, which... Let's just say that the coca leaf and coke and injectable cocaine are really two different things. 
Recently, there's been some historical revisionism going on. I'm not going to weigh into the whether snorting cocaine powder versus freebasing cocaine is any different. Obviously, crack and freebase became uh, associated uh, with uh, a sort of racist policing uh, modality. And now, like I said, we're having some revisionist history about that. Uh, It doesn't matter, right? But the point is, once you take a plant... You identify the compound in question, you extract it from the plant, and you bypass the uh, normal mechanisms that slow the absorption, such as the GI tract, or in the case of the lungs, uh, you create highly concentrated uh, substances that mainline into the bloodstream in exactly the same way that injecting it would. And that's where we run into a big problem. Because when you do that, you really change the features and the characteristics of the compound. Now, smoked marijuana, probably not addictive. But with the emergence of more and more highly concentrated and highly hybridized forms of marijuana, some medical medical things are emerging. And I want to just throw out some cautionary words to you. Now, don't it, there's big money to be made here. So expect lots of people with skin in the game to be minimizing the adverse effects from products and blaming the users and not themselves for producing these concentrates. Expect, uh, uh, expect uh, that there are big tax benefits. Uh, we're talking major, major benefits to the bottom lines of various states. There's been about... 10 billion in tax revenues annually coming through to the states where it's legalized. Uh, the first year that uh, Massachusetts uh, legalized, they took in $112 million in tax revenues. That was more than triple what they'd estimated. So naturally, uh, cash-starved states are getting in line, some of the more surprising ones, you might think. And what we can expect is, uh, well, look at New York City. I mean, New York City is going to become Amsterdam. And we've got bud tenders at legal dispensary and gummies and tinctures and high-grade sativa uh, users. You know, let's, let's look at Colorado, one of the first states to legalize. Uh, This was a recreational drug. Well, now it's a daily vitamin. Uh, 48% of cannabis users in Colorado now get high every day. And the adult marijuana use is higher because guess what? It being illegal was a deterrent to quote-unquote law-abiding citizens. Problem use amongst teens has gotten much higher. And naturally, there have been more motor vehicle fatalities. It's to be expected. It's to be expected that when you are uh, sleepy, drowsy, or your reflexes are affected, that's going to be a problem. Recent studies show that people uh, that if you're under 18, in other words, while your brain is still developing, you end up with changes in your cognitive development, changes in the way your brain wires. And I'll just tell you from personal experience, uh, I'm I'm seeing a a connection, a correlation between marijuana use and anxiety. And I'm not sure what the arrow of causality is. I'm 
rather worried with these ultrapotents that that era of causality may be something along the lines of uh, a schizophrenic person trying to self-medicate as their brain starts to go sideways and using drugs that actually make them worse. Again, chicken and egg problem, and all we can really see with our epidemiology is correlation. Now, some of the current concentrates, some of the candies, the vaping oils, they can have a THC level of 90%. Okay, I I, I want to talk about 90% versus 5% because, you know, your your father's pot uh, was 5% marijuana or your grandfather's pot if we're if we're going back to the 70s. And 90% marijuana, uh, THC, is really sending people sideways. There's also a new marijuana or cannabis withdrawal symptom. It's called cannabinoid hyperemesis. I've talked about it before. You may actually have that or know someone who does have it. Uh, It's intense, uncontrollable vomiting after a period of abstinence. And of course, if you're vomiting and you've got marijuana around, you're going to have some because it's an anti-nausea drug, right? Well, this is actually a form of cannabinoid withdrawal. If you get your THC receptors saturated over a period of time, you get adaptation of the receptors. One of the things THC uh, did that allowed medical marijuana to get rolling in the first place was it helped cancer chemotherapy patients not vomit and lose weight. Well, guess what? If you downregulate those receptors, you get spontaneous vomiting. And how do you diagnose this? Well, you tell the person to take a hot shower because for some reason the hot shower turns off the vomiting. Bingo. Now you know what you've got. But the latest studies suggest that maybe three out of 10 cannabis users become problem users. And this is about... This is about potency, folks. Only one state has a potency cap. I don't know what Vermont's potency cap is, but I really think that we need to have one. I think that we limit the potency of alcohol, for example. Uh, You can't get pure ethyl alcohol, and there's a reason for that. At that level, it's toxic. It has a toxic effect, a very toxic effect, and your body can't clear it quickly enough. So what am I saying? I'm saying that we need to realize that there's a lot of barriers to the government coming to our rescue here, and I wouldn't hold my breath that I, I that anybody else is going to even admit that the problem is as severe. So let me sound the alarm and say... Don't use the really super concentrated stuff all the time. It's a bad idea. You're going to get into trouble and you're going to change your brain receptors and you need to back you need to back off from that slowly and carefully in a controlled fashion just like you would for uh some like an anti-seizure medication for people who get into trouble using Valium or barbiturates. You got to come off that stuff gradually because your brain will go seriously sideways in the case of barbiturates that it can kill you withdrawing from those and in the case uh and in the case of something like valium once you get a serious habit you can have brain seizures so i'm not try i i mean i am not a prude here i'm just sen- i'm just giving you sensible medical advice it's 
akin to shooting cocaine to use these super, super concentrated products. And it's a bad idea. All right, so organ transplants. This is a big problem. In the United States, at least 100,000 people are on the wait list right now to receive some kind of vital organ, kidney, liver, etc. And every nine minutes, another person joins that list. And every day, 17 people die and come off the list because an organ didn't reach them. It's hard to find an organ. First, you have to match the blood type and, if possible, the age of the donor. Second, they can't be too far away from each other since the organ can only survive without blood flow for a few hours. But a team of researchers at Yale has recently reported an exciting development. Uh, This came out a couple of weeks ago. They have found a method that prevents the cells from dying and actually initiates cellular recovery. This technology could potentially keep organs alive outside the body for longer so they can travel longer distances for transportation, maybe even someday be stored in a kind of organ bank for people who who are donors who have really rare uh, types that the need only comes up now and then. The scientists described it in their press release as steering the cells away from dying. So think about it, how it works, okay? When cells don't die as quickly as we always assumed they do, when a person suffers a stroke or dies, blood stops flowing in the body and the cells within the organs stop receiving the oxygen and the glucose and other nutrients uh, that they need to survive. This, this causes eventually cell damage and the cells eventually become damaged beyond repair, but they do go into a kind of a hibernation, and they don't die as quickly as we thought they did. And if we can learn how to signal the cells not to die, well, that's going to be a real game changer. This study was published in August in the journal Nature, and in the first set round of experiments, they, they experimented on around 100 pigs to see whether cell structures could be saved or if they could reverse cell damage. They used uh, what they're calling Organex one hour after they had simulated death. Now, the pigs, uh, the, the technology Organex is actually two technologies. One is a device very similar to the ECMO device that we put people on when uh, they had COVID. It turns out that ECMO worked better than a ventilator. It took the blood out of the body and then put oxygen into it, and then pumped it back in. So it was basically an artifi- a, a, a heart-lung machine. Well, when you hook that up to a um, to a living mammal, you can push them. They would push. They do push a mixture of blood and a kind of drug cocktail. We'll talk about that in a moment. The, the drug cocktail is called a synthetic perfusate. It's basically thirteen different chemical compounds, including drugs that we already know about that target issues such as cell death and target coagulation. So in the first study, they killed the pigs. The pigs were were anesthetized, and then their hearts were stopped. So they didn't feel any pain. After an hour, they hooked them up to the Organ X machine. And the machine had sensors 
that looked at the metabolome of the perfusate as it came out of, of these animals. So they pumped this perfusate into them for six hours, and they looked to see whether the cells had returned to functioning. So, for example, did the pancreas start secreting insulin again? Were they preserving the tissue? And the answer is yes. So currently what we do when someone is brain dead and they're a donor is we go and we harvest the organ. But the idea that we might be able to hook the organ up to a machine that would fool the organ into thinking it was still alive and reverse some of the damage that had been done, you can imagine a kind of you know rolling refrigerator or suitcase, not the little, uh, you know, <laughs> beer con- uh, beer container that currently the organs are transplanted in, but something that's actually actively promoting the health of the organ. It's a pretty amazing uh, new advance, and I'm very excited to tell you about it. I'm also excited to tell you about researchers discovering that a compound that we already know about, hyaluronic acid, is actually a, is actually part of a complex healing clock. This, this study was just published in uh, the journal Science, and it unravels a form of cell communication that, that controls muscle repairs. So in a damaged muscle, the stem cells that can make new muscle cells have to coordinate with the immune cells in order to complete the repair process. And there's a, a stepwise way this happens. Uh, you've got to first remove the dead tissue, the damaged tissue, and that's where the immune cells come in. They go in there and they kind of melt it and chew it up and take it away. And the researchers found that hyaluronic acid, which is, you can go to any drugstore and find it on the shelf used in facial cosmetics because it's very good at retaining moisture. It's also injected into particularly knees, but it's used for osteoarthritis. And it's a very viscous substance. Its function is to act as a kind of lubricant in the joints, and it may actually uh, be an anti-inflammatory some of the time, although I've seen it do the opposite. So clearly we haven't got that one ironed out yet. But, you know, when a muscle's first damaged, it's really important for the immune cells to get in there fast and remove the damage. And the stem cells have to just sit on the sidelines and not start making things because that'll just get chewed up by the immune cells. So the the muscle cells actually are primed immediately by the injury to start repair. But the immune cells are suppressing the stem cells while they finish the cleanup job. At about 40 hours out, once the cleanup job is finished, an an internal alarm goes off in the muscle stem cells, and they wake up and start laying down new actin and myosin and rebuilding the muscle cell. And these doctors at Yale identified hyaluronic acid as the a key ingredient in the alarm clock, and this is how it works. It's, it's, a, it's an alarm clock that is built on the time it takes to transcribe DNA, or run it through the, uh, turn it into messenger RNA, run it through the ribosomes. And once that happens, the muscle cells start producing, the, the stem cells start producing hyaluronic acid. And they excrete it and coat their surfaces with it. 
And so the, the coating builds up as they keep producing hyaluronic acid. And once the coating gets thick enough, the sleep signal that the immune cells are continuing to send can't get into the muscle cells. And so the suppression that the immune cells have been sending no longer works and the muscle cells wake up and start trans and start transcribing the actin and the myosin and the other components of the collagen that they need to rebuild the muscle. Probably also around that point, the the hyaluronic acid or some other compound that's being simultaneously produced that we haven't identified yet signals to the immune cells that the party is over and sends them off back into the bloodstream and into the interstitial fluid to wait for another day for another injury. What we know is that aging is associated with chronic inflammation and a reduced ability for the muscle stem cells to wake up and repair damage. We don't, you know, certainly I could knock myself out, you know, go to the gym and just push really hard and at 20 and I'd be sore for a day, uh, usually 48 hours out as it happens. And then the next day I'd be a little sore and by after that I'd be fine. If I push that hard now in my 60s, what happens is I'm sore for three three days. It, I don't recover as quickly. And obviously when we have more severe damage than just the micro injury of lifting weights, it takes a lot longer. Interestingly enough, you can't just inject hyaluronic acid into the cells. It actually, the regenerative effect depends on the muscle cells themselves being stimulated to, to produce the hyaluronic acid. And they don't say this, they haven't established in the article, but it seems to me quite logical that the same thing that turns on the hyaluronic acid also uh, turns on the production of actin and myosin, but then there's another, but then the stuff that's coming in from the muscle cells is selectively suppressing the muscle proteins from being made by going and sitting on that DNA until such time that it, can, that it stops penetrating the muscle cells. And this is a really good example of how most of what happens in our body self-organizes. The fact that you're using DNA transcription as a kind of timer to coordinate it, I think that's probably a universal. Something very similar happens, for example, in blood clotting. And I suspect that it's not just those things. It might be most things. Certainly, based on my undergraduate studies of the brain and how the brain coordinates itself, suppressing something that is suppressing something else is how most brain activation takes place. So while we're on the subject of tissues and inflammation, see, in the inflammation there is good as long as it breaks down the broken muscle. You want a certain amount of inflammation, but once you've triggered it, it's okay to turn it off. Too much inflammation is really bad for you. And during the, during the worst days in, the, in 2020 of COVID-19, research came out, which if you're a regular listener, you heard here first, probably, that people with higher levels of vitamin D when they hit the emergency room did substantially better than people with low levels of vitamin D. And one of the things that happens, you know, if we're going to talk equity for just a moment, if you have darker skin and you are working two jobs and you are busting your butt to keep your, your roof over your family's head and keep everybody fed, you're not outside that much. So the chances that you are recreationally getting out 
uh, and getting enough vitamin D are low, and the chances that you're taking supplements because they're expensive is probably also somewhat lower. So maybe that's part of why we saw such different issues, but it's also about inflammation. And we haven't really known for sure exactly what's going on. A study that just was published, genetic research from the University of South Australia, established a direct link between low levels of vitamin D and high levels of inflammation. This is a biological uh, link, not just a epidemiological link. So it's a stronger level of evidence. They had almost 300,000 people participating in the UK Biobank. And what they found was a very strong inverse relationship between vitamin D and C-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation that's made by the liver. People with long COVID have, for example, elevated levels of C-reactive protein, and that's one of the ways that we try to figure out what drugs are going to help them. And that, of course, is a very active area of research right now. But there's a one-way relationship. If you've got low levels of vitamin D, you're going to have higher inflammation across the board. Whatever stimulates the inflammation, it's going to be higher and it's going to have a harder time turning off. And we've long suspected this because there's plenty of evidence that supports this. But this is the first study that looked at the genetics and showed that a certain amount of this is genetically related to how good you are at making vitamin D. We're starting to figure out how to, well, how to weaponize uh, insect senses and also how insect senses weaponize us. I found this story particularly fascinating. Viral diseases that cause tropical diseases, viruses like dengue and Zika, can actually hijack their host's scent to better attract mosquitoes. This new research is very significant because mosquitoes are the vein vectors for the spread of dengue and Zika. So obviously it's in the virus's advantage to make the mosquitoes bite more humans when they're infected. This was published in the journal Cell on uh, June 13th. Now, researchers already knew that some microorganisms were capable of manipulating the scent of a host's body. There was a study in 2014 that showed that plasmodium, which is a malaria-spreading pathogen, can hack the body odor to attract more mosquitoes, but they wanted to understand what's going on. Uh, So they decided to essentially ask the mosquitoes themselves. So they had a group of mice with either Zika or Dengue. They put them in one enclosure and a group of healthy mice, the control group, in another. And then they let the mosquitoes decide which enclosure to go into, and about two-thirds of the mosquitoes reliably moved towards the infective mice. They they smelled yummier. And so they uh, sampled the air from each enclosure, and they identified about 422 volatile, volatile chemicals, but only some of those varied between the the infected and the uninfected mice. So they tested the air with different compounds, having isolated them, and the compound with the highest response is one called acetophenone. Now, this occurs naturally in many foods, includes apples, cheese, apricots, bananas, beef, and cauliflower. And the mice infected with Zika produced about 10 times more 
acetophenone as the healthy mice. So when they so they smeared some acetophenone on some humans, and indeed the mosquitoes were more attracted to the humans. So they've pretty much established this, and there may be other volatile and probably are other volatile compounds. But how does this work exactly? Well, it turns out that the acetophenone is produced by bacteria, and these bacteria grow naturally on our skin. But this growth is usually inhibited by an antimicrobial protein that is secreted by skin cells in the sebum, which is the skin oil. So the study showed that the gene responsible for making this protein was less active. So they made less of it when the mice were sick with Dzenga or Zika. So the virus over time evolved to suppress the gene that was suppressing the bacteria. You see what I mean about suppressing a receptor? But this is not internal. This is this is cross-species, and it's a virus doing the suppressing, which is just kind of crazy when you realize that the virus isn't alive. It's just, its only purpose is to make more viruses. And eventually, it happens across, stumbles across a way of doing it, and that gets incorporated because that's the virus that gets to dominate. So this is cool. I can definitely, I'm definitely interested in, and I think probably their work into patent, how can we make that antimicrobial protein? Uh, how can we just make it as a mosquito repellent? We could just sort of prevent, we'd take a shower, put that on, and then we wouldn't make enough acetophenone to attract mosquitoes. Well, we'd have to first discover if there's anything else we're making. And there probably is. CO2 has been uh, sort of the standard explanation, but the fact that there's more to it than that, certainly an interesting idea, particularly in malaria-prone areas. Turns out there are already existing drugs that suppress the ability of the body to make acetophenone. And one of these is actually available as a generic. It's uh, isotretinoin, which is a, is, is a commercially available acne medicine, Accutane, derived from vitamin A. Huh, who knew that? I, I'm, I'm just really wondering. We should go out and do this experiment with the mosquitoes and people who are taking Accutane uh, and you know, see how powerful it is. Maybe we could use lower doses that would have less side effects. Caution, however, Accutane, because of its effect on vitamin A it's, and its uh, vitamin A-like behavior, can actually be fetal toxic. So we're going to have to do a lot of safety testing before we use anything in that category and start giving it to people to try to prevent a, uh, a disease. Let's take some time and go to some emails. This email from Gary in New Hampshire was sent last week. Uh, this morning I read an article in The Atlantic, The Pandemic's Soft Closing. I would appreciate hearing on air your thoughts on the article's main point. Why does the CDC now appear to have given up on enforcing COVID protocols? Uh, you said on air some time ago that practicing proper pro COVID protocols was a citizen's responsibility. I could not agree with you more. I feel for you and all those working in healthcare because you're the ones compelled to provide treatment to others without discrimination as to their health practices. But I'm worried there'll come a day, if it isn't already here, that there just aren't enough of you fine medical folks to go along. Thank you for all that you do for others. 
Well, Gary, I'm going to address the soft closing article. Thank you for the compliment. I have nothing but respect for first responders of all stripe and also those people in the brown trucks, for example, that keep bringing us the stuff that we need. We need to be nice to them, even if they are driving a little bit crazy. It's a crazy time. So what's going to happen this fall is a very good question. What has happened is that funding has dried up massively. And that's something that this Atlantic article really did not address. But what the author is complaining about is there seems to have been a shift in focus, not preventing the spread of COVID, but only on avoiding severe illness and death. Quoting the article, which was written by Catherine Wu, a slew of Omicron variants are still burning across most states. COVID deaths have for months remained at a stubborn too high plateau. The virus won't budge, nor will Americans. So the administration is shifting its stance and said, And then she goes on to list about people no longer being required to quarantine after encountering someone infected, uh, schools and workplaces no longer needing to screen healthy students, and a sort of lack of guidance around physical distancing. Well, first of all, I disagree with that aspect of the criticism because enforcement was futile in the face of widespread noncompliance. So... It wasn't making, it wasn't working, enforcing mask mandates in trying to enforce, uh, and certainly vaccination mandate was completely out of the question. Certainly, you know, having what I saw in both Indonesia and what developed in Morocco, which was basically a vaccine pass. They did that in Europe, too. You don't get to go into the restaurant unless you can prove you've been vaccinated. It was not such a bad idea. It was political dead on arrival here in the United States where, you know, we value our freedom more than other people's lives sometimes. We could have a whole discussion about that, but I want to stay on topic. There is an equity argument, and I think it's going to slap us in the face this fall because while the states do have a supply of vaccines, the money for distribution and the money for advertising and outreach is gone. It's not, it's gone and they're not giving them any more. So it has been, as far as I'm concerned, not that hard to find a vaccine for the last six months or so. It was very difficult initially. The demand was high. But as the demand dropped and the supply didn't, it got to be on kind of on a walk-in basis. And I just want to give a shout out to the poor, overworked pharmacists. Oh, my God. Talk about people who must have just been bearing an incredible brunt. They've got all this jo- this job they're supposed to do. They're supposed to keep their employees safe. They're supposed to keep themselves safe. They're supposed to continue to distribute drugs and not make s- mistakes. And now they're having to give vaccines and explain things to people and deal with people who don't even remember what vaccine they got because we never got our act together with the software, which somehow they managed to do in other countries. So... Really, my point here is I think that the stuff that the CDC tried to do initially was right-headed, not wrong-headed, but I think they their boat shattered on the rocks of reality, and we never developed 
a, a appropriate form of social pressure to get compliance. So yeah, it has ended up being people's individual responsibility. And uh, how's that going to work out for us? Well, I guess we're going to find out this winter as we all go back inside, even here in sunny Santa Cruz, uh, we're going to see a bump. Let's do another email, a couple from Shawl in Israel. Uh, Shawl writes, I hear more and more about the benefits of NMN supplements. And uh, what's your opinion? Which I really appreciate. I'm uh, 75 years old and have a BMI of 20. So let's talk about NMN. First of all, this is a uh, niacin-type drug. And niacin is used by the body. This is vitamin B3. And niacin is used by the body to make NADH, which is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, a molecule that looks an awful lot like uh, the... It looks an awful lot like one of the uh, components of DNA, actually, when you look at its ring structures. But this is extremely important in carrying electrons from one reaction to another. And almost everything is fueled by electron transport at multiple levels. So communication between cells, enzymatic reactions, and of course, the production of ATP. It's all about the electrons, baby. So... What happens is that NAD is an oxidizing agent. It accepts an electron from other molecules and then becomes reduced. Because it's accepted an electron, it also ends up accepting a hydrogen ion, and, and it forms NADH, which can then donate electrons or be a reducing agent. So this is what NAD does, and it's important for building uh well, basically, in any enzymatic reaction, uh, it also is important for post-translational modification, so making those proteins actually work. And so there's been a lot of targets for drug discovery. That's all. They're all made from niacin. And the question really is, the NMN is expensive, and it's being pushed very hard. Uh, and it has demonstrated that if you take it orally, it will boost your NAD levels. And boosting your NAD is going to improve cellular energy production. The real question, Shal, is whether or not taking the fancy molecule versus just taking the vitamin is going to do the job. And, of course, we can tell you that not necessarily. Your nicotinamide riboside and your nicotinamide mononucleotide, the NMN you asked about, are pretty much therapeutically equivalent uh, niacinamide is going to work, and it's cheap, much cheaper. This is also called nicotinamide. Niacinamide is your best bet, my friend, because it is non-flushing, it's stable at room temperature, it's well-absorbed, and the hype uh, about these expensive forms is exactly that. It's just hype. I want to tell you about an exciting discovery about other B vitamins, and this is vitamin B12 and folic acid. Turns out they can reverse a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which has become a really big problem. This is an umbrella term for 
a bunch of liver conditions where people accumulate fat in their liver, but they're non-alcoholic. About 25% of adults globally, it's linked to diabetes and obesity, which are happening in epidemic proportions. And as it progresses, it leads to scar tissue formation, and you end up with something called NASH syndrome, which is actually very much like alcoholic cirrhosis. And we're seeing people need liver transplants because of NASH. And this is absolutely no bueno. Scientists knew that when you have NASH, you have elevated blood levels of an amino acid called homocysteine, but they had no idea what that meant. But now researchers all over the world, but especially at Duke uh, Medical School here and in universities in Singapore, India, China, have shown that homocysteine levels, as they increase in the blood, they increase in the liver, that amino acid attaches to various liver proteins and it changes their structure and interferes with their functioning. It's toxic to the liver at high levels. I know about homocysteine and I'll tell you what I know about it because it's also important in heart disease and vascular pathology. But in the liver, it actually attaches to a protein, syntaxin 17, and keeps it from transporting and digesting fat. So if the liver can't break down fat, it has to stash it and guess where it stashes it? in the liver cells, the hepatocytes, which then get damaged and inflammation results. And this progresses to scar tissue and we're off to the races. What do we know also about homocysteine from its importance in cardiac disease? Its association with heart disease is well-established. What's also well-established is giving people, is that people with elevated homocysteine have a problem in processing B12 and folic acid. So elevated homocysteine can be a hallmark of deficiency. And what they did was they gave B12 and folic acid to people uh, with elevated homocysteine. And they found that by doing that, they increased the function of the syntaxin 17 and they were able to slow down the progression and reverse the inflammation. Now, this is interesting because high levels of homocysteine are highly inflammatory in the vascular wall, but it takes years and years for that to manifest as uh, heart disease. And so short-term studies giving people something that lowers homocysteine didn't show benefits, so it was abandoned as a drug therapy. But there are people who have a mutation in their B12 and folate metabolism. In the case of folate, it's called MTHFR. And with this enzyme, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase, is weak, you get high levels of homocysteine. There's also another enzyme called MTRR that does the same thing in B12. And mutations in these particular genes are fairly common. At least 3% of most of the American population will have one mutation in MTHFR. One's not so bad, but when you have two, it's really severe and causes a lot of problems. And it can be treated by bypassing the MTHFR step and using methylated B vitamins, something that I recommend everyone do unless you're going to get the genetic testing and find out that you don't have this problem. Something that's present in 1% to 2% of the population, well, it's a, it's a big deal. So high homocysteine, no bueno. If we give B12 and folate, at least in the general population, we can reverse some of that and we can reverse the hepatic 
fat deposition and avoid the scarring. This is huge news to me, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about this the next time there's a functional medicine conference, which I sure hope will be in person. So we've got our caller who's been waiting patiently, and uh, you're on the air. Yes, thank you, Dr. Aline Calling in Santa Cruz, and I registered 20 years ago to donate my body to Stanford when you mentioned about body donations. My question, any new research about herpes and getting rid of it forever? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much for the question, Mm -hmm. Aline. Uh, The answer is I have not done a literature search. I scanned the literature and I have not seen a thing. It's extremely difficult to eradicate a virus once it's gotten into the nerves. It inserts itself effectively into the genome, and therefore we, we, we'd need CRISPR. We'd need CRISPR technology to go in there and find it and take it out. And while we've got the CRISPR and we could probably build that in a weekend, what we don't have is a good way to deliver it. And that's been our real challenge when we're talking about treating adult humans and erasing a gene it's very tricky to do that cleanly and accurately without creating other mutations that might damage other parts of their DNA and eventually what we call an off-target insertion or deletion that could effectively give them cancer. So nothing yet. I do find, uh, and I'm very happy to say, that the drugs that are used to suppress herpes are extremely effective and very safe. And that, of course, is great news. So uh, we've got an email that came from uh, just now. Uh, This is from Carrie, and I'm assuming in Santa Cruz. My son now grows his own marijuana and prides himself on the high THC content of his plants. He's learned a lot about the -the state-of-the-art knowledge in cannabis in order to have the highest quality herb. Thank you so much, Dr. Don, for the info you gave earlier on this. Not sure I can convey this to him in a way that he will hear, but since... He has a little two-and-a-half-year-old. Now he may be more willing to do so. Is smoking less potent cannabis uh, half the time what you would recommend? I think that when you're talking about less potent cannabis, uh, not extracts, not dab, not paste, uh, and, of course, the gummies you can load with just a ton of the stuff. By the way, no gummies in the house, right? Nothing sweet, candy-like, cookies, brownies. You got a two-and-a-half-year-old. And one of the problems I didn't talk about that is a big headache in the emergency room in states that have legal marijuana is kids getting a hold of something that looks like cookies or candies and overdosing on it. You can make a child quite sick and they need to be hospitalized for a couple of days. And we don't really have any idea whether that has a long-term effect on them. And I'm sure you don't. You can tell your son that he doesn't want his kid to be one of the people that's in the study to see whether or not that's a bad thing uh, for their brain. So that should at least get his attention about keeping his child safe. You know, what what we've learned from trying to get people not to abuse drugs, not to abuse alcohol, not to overeat, is that people are going to do what they're going to do. And our best bet is to inform them of the risks and help them understand how they can use their thing that they're enjoying more safely and in a more health-sustaining way. So if a person is using regularly, they'll burn through their THC quickly. 
people who are using very high doses, their liver enzymes that break it down will rev up the tissue cytochrome P450s in the brain will rev up and they'll break it down much faster. Uh, reducing, taking lower levels of THC and giving yourself 48 hours between doses is probably a good start for someone who's coming down from being a regular user. I'll also point out that if you alternate with uh, CBD to get the calming effect on the days you don't smoke THC, you may need longer because the action of CBD is to slow the breakdown of THC. And since we're trying to clear it out of the system so that the receptors will reset properly and not downregulate in some fashion, we need to give that clean time there. And you could do that with a urine tox screen, which you can get for free. Well, not well for free at work, maybe, but also it's a relatively cheap test. I think it's like 45 bucks on uh, to run a ur- urine tox screen. And there may even be, there's probably k- kits that are pretty good, although I haven't looked at that. So that's my answer. Thank you very much, Carrie, for listening. And I hope that uh, your grandbaby is as delightful as I imagine. All right. Well, we've got not enough time to do much, but here's a fun fact. We talked about the mosquitoes earlier. Uh, locusts can sniff out human cancer. It's not really ready for prime time, but imagine someday that your cancer workup includes a bug scan. Locusts can not only smell the difference between cancer cells and healthy cells, but they can actually d- distinguish between different cancer cell lines. And maybe what we can do is look at how their sensory neurons do that and use that to jump us forward a bit on our uh, ability to try to create a chemical nose. Now, we're so far behind on the evolution on the nose standpoint, it's not even funny. Uh, dogs can definitely smell explosive drugs, and we know that they can smell low blood pressure, COVID-19, and, and prostate cancers. So why is this? Because cancer cells have different physiology, and they create a different mix of chemical compounds, and the complex brains of a bug are capable of figuring that out. So get to work, programmers. We need this technology. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.